Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, good morning, everybody. Yeah, good morning. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to many of you watching and listening online. I think we can resonate with that last phrase, can we not? Hope is here. Do you believe that this morning? It's such an amazing... You can clap about that. That's good. Yes. Like I shared last week as we began our series, there's an enormous difference between longing and concrete knowing. There's a vast difference between chance and informed trust, an immense difference between wishful thinking and knowing expectation. See, hope is real to us. It is real, but it becomes real to us when it becomes tested. Now, most of us, when we're honest, I made mention of this before, don't really think about the end. Most of us don't think about our death very much. Most of us don't also think about what we will say just before we leave. Most of us don't think about our last words or what we'll inscribe on our tombstone. There are moments in our life as we progress and get older where we begin to reflect. I turn 40 today, like right now. I'm turning 40. Thank you. Thank you. I'm having a midlife crisis in front of you at this moment. I'd like, a, actually, could we have a moment of silence for the loss of my hair and the loss of my youth? Just, we, good, yeah. No, but you know, as you get older, as you go to different ages and stages, you begin to think about things. You understand how temporal life is, how fragile life is. And it's so interesting as you take moments to look at the inevitable end, you realize if you have hope or not, or it reveals you might have some You know, last words are so revealing to me, and it's such a striking thing to look at. I took some time this week to look and listen to people's last words. I looked up people's famous last statements before they died. I'd like to share some with you because they reveal again where people's hope is or where it was not. Alfred Hitchcock began like this. His very last words were, one never knows the ending One has to die to actually know what takes place. But Catholics, well, they do have their hopes. And then he died. Groucho Marx said, this is no way to live, and died. Karl Marx started yelling at his housekeeper, saying, get out, get out. Last words are for fools who have not said enough yet. Frank Sinatra just said, I'm losing it. Harry Houdini said, I'm tired of fighting. I guess this thing is finally going to get me. Joan Crawford swore, I won't use the word, at her housekeeper who began to pray out loud and she said, don't you dare ask God to help me. And she died. Henry VIII said, all is lost. Monks, monks, monks. And so now all is gone. Empire, body, and soul. Thomas Aquinas, the great thinker and theologian, just said, all is straw. It was the composer Jean-Philippe Remus who objected to a song being sung at his bed. This is his last words as as a priest was singing. What the devil do you mean to sing to me, priest? You are out of tune. And he died. Notre Dame has predicted tomorrow I will not be here at sunrise. And he was right. One of the saddest I read this week is Leonardo da Vinci. He said, I have offended God and I have offended humanity because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Steve Jobs simply said, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Churchill said, I'm bored with it all. T.S. Eliot just mouthed the name of his wife, Valerie. 
Michelangelo said these words. He says, I give my soul to God, my body to the earth, and my worldly possessions to my nearest of kin, charging them to remember the sufferings of Christ. Blaise Pascal, to me, said the best thing. He said, may God never abandon me. It is so revealing when you listen to what people say on their death. But I have been witness to many deaths because I'm a pastor. And in those moments, you begin to see what people did hope in, what hope they had or they did not have. Let me again remind all of us this morning and share what I did last week. There is one line in the whole Bible which is the grand litmus test of our hope or maybe the lack of it. This line, in my opinion, should inform or should be the last words of every Christian. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, this can only be said by someone that has not just heard about hope or talked about hope or sung about hope or read about hope, but has actually experienced through and through hope by encountering the living Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how radically different this is compared to most of the last words I just shared with you. To die for a Christian is gain where most people look back or lash out or have no clue. But we again declare in this generation we know and we do have hope. So again, before we launch out week two, before we do this continue all ongoing call to prayer all over the earth, before new sites, before we do things we have never done as a church before, let me say this again. Am I, are you truly filled with Christian hope? What are we supposed to spread here, there, and everywhere? Did I ever have Christian hope? Is it not as clear as it once was? Has hope become tarnished or missed because of life or pain or age or distraction or entertainment? Is my hope growing or is my hope diminishing? Was it even here? Let's make sure that we have what we claim and what we want to pray for. Now, last week, I took the whole service to remind us to pray for, to hear together, to know that we have hope as Christians because our past is covered. Do you remember what was said in Romans 5? That we are justified. We have peace with God. We've already been announced in God's presence. We have unfettered access. We permanently now stand in God's presence. We have a hope that does not fade. We have a promise that in suffering, perseverance, character, and hope will show up. We've been declared reconciled. We've been saved through the life of Jesus. We've been saved through God, from God's just coming wrath. When we face God after we die, we will only encounter love. We found it last week. We are received and we are reconciled. And the profound thing last week we heard was all of this is already true of us because our past is covered. Anyone want to say amen yet? Like amen, that's done. So today let's shift from yesterday to tomorrow. Let's move from the past to the future. Let's talk about the moment right after you utter your last words. See, we as Christians not only have hope because our past is covered, we have hope because our future is secure. And that's why we can declare that hope is here. Paul, in his earliest writings, or some of his earliest writings, said this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who has, what? No hope. 
We are not like them, Paul says. See, when Christianity burst onto the scene, the Christian idea of hope that we take for granted, especially we who have grown up in church, was foreign, had never been heard, or did not exist. The pagan world was deeply influenced by two authors, Homer and Plato. One author said Homer acts like their Old Testament and Plato like their New Testament. Now, if you read them fundamentally at their core, they deny any form of physical resurrection. They say death has the final say, and there really is no full hope in the future. No one outside of the Jewish faith actually believed in physical resurrection. And the Jews of Jesus' day, oh yes, they believed in hope, And many believed in resurrection, but it was a future event. But as Christians, because Jesus actually had physically risen from the dead, and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we began to declare to a world that had never heard this before, that hope already had broken in, was breaking in, and one day will fully break in. See, what stuns scholars today, secular scholars, is the unanimous agreement in the first 60 years of our movement that everyone believed in physical resurrection, everyone believed Jesus rose from the dead, and everyone lived their life under the great declaration that hope was here. Now, if you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn back to Romans, because in Romans chapter 8, there's this another burst of hope. There's three sort of little bursts of hope in Romans. Romans 5, which is about our past, Romans 15, and then in Romans 8. Now, in Romans 8, Paul begins to unpack our future hope. And I just want to walk, it with, walk through with you today. Romans 8.19 reads like this. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. This says that all of creation, all of capital R reality, is craning its neck, is stretching forward, is waiting to regain what was lost in Eden. See, here's what Paul is declaring. When we are physically resurrected at the end of time as Christians, at that moment, everything will be made right. It's like a two-step dance. Jesus has been resurrected, then we are resurrected, and then everything else is made whole. So Paul gives us this grand statement of hope where he assures us that death does not win, physical resurrection is a guarantee, and all of creation is going to be made right again. So he utters this, and then he stops. Like I preached this in 2009, it's almost like he gives us whiplash. It's like when you're in a roller coaster. Ever done Space Mountain and Disney World, you have no clue where you're about to go? He forces us hard to a side we're not expecting. He forces us back to Genesis 3. And he reminds us the world, though there is hope, is full of sin. There is groaning. There is trouble in this world. And it is all a consequence of rebellion that not only affected humans, but actually affected all of creation. Verse 20, for the creation was subject, subject to the frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjugated it. Creation burst forth with color and fragrance and food. It was a kind place. It was a harmonious place. It was, it was a peaceful place in the truest sense. It was generous. But then God gave the command to Adam and Eve not to eat. And like I've shared before, it wasn't that God was playing with us or was a manipulative person. No, see, God had to provide choice because we're made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God implies will. And so he, of course, affirmed our humanity by giving us choice. 
And we decided that actually we as humans were right and God was wrong. And so we ate, not out of love, not out of relationship, but out of rebellion. And it was that solitary act that brought all that was very good to be maimed and marred and marked and misused. And then the question is asked, well, is there any hope then? Is there any real future? Are the atheistic evolutionaries right? There really was no beginning and there is no end and all is lost and lost forever and there's no such thing as redemption, recreation, or no outside rescue is coming. We're only left with the idea as humans that we can manage and maintain, but we will never truly be changed. Well, we declare as Christians, you're wrong. You're wrong 100%. For the creation was subjugated to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjugated it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Paul says these words to us through the scriptures. God is going to make everything right again. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And bondage and decay will not exist anymore. See, that is hope. That is why we can say hope is already here. There is light on the horizon that spans history itself. One day there will be no more shadow. Imagine a world, no pollution, no war. No abuse. There will be never an act of abandonment again. No hatred of God. No misunderstanding of God. No heresy. No no rebellion against his truth. There will be no more tears. No more misunderstanding. There will be no more slavery or addiction or drug culture or mafia. There will be no more conflicts or dictators or sickness. And there will be no more death. See, God is not going to destroy creation because he loves creation. He is going to come back and he is going to liberate creation. He's going to clean creation. He's going to make it right. See, we believe as Christians that creation itself is going to be made whole again. And that, of course, is hope-giving because we live in a world that is marked by war and disease and natural disasters and humanitarian crisis and financial ruin and broken relationships and terminal illness and injustice, and we're all going to die in the end. But there's a day coming where that That will not be anymore, and we are going to be present on that day. See, that's the hope that we have, not just because our past is covered, because there is a day that is coming that all the ills that we have started by our own rebellion and selfishness will be covered. See, we know, verse 22, that the whole of creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Ladies, you ever had a baby before, some of you? Okay, I haven't. That's a good thing. Okay. Now, praise God. Oh, good, good call. Now, I remember, I'm an only child and only grandchild, right? I've had a lot of issues to work through that the world isn't about me. Now, I remember, it's my 40th birthday. It's about me. Thank you. <laughs> So I remember walking into the maternity ward with my wife. I mean, I didn't touch babies. I didn't know what to do with babies. They freaked me out. And this was, the baby was coming. And I remember walking in and hearing this woman scream at the top. I just was like, what is going on? I like just freaked because she was crying out to get this baby out. See, this is what creation is actually doing. It is begging this thing to come out. End this now. It is crying out in great pain because it knows that the birth that is coming is beautiful and it's new life and it's better than it is now. 
As one person wrote, so at times, the forces of nature seem to even work against themselves. Everywhere our eyes meet images of death and decay, the scourge of the elements, the destructive instinct of beasts, the very laws that govern us and vegetation, everything has a somber hue. He writes, you know, you know humanity, uh, uh, humanity's abuses exacerbate the disharmony. He says, I've lived in cities where the air is too polluted to comfortably breathe. He says, I've walked on beaches where tar coats my feet. And he says, you know, it's probably true that if humanity keeps going this way unhindered, there will be one last person standing at the edge of a petroleum-clogged sea while behind him rises the twisted skeletons of the great cities that once were. See, the earth is groaning like a woman in labor. It desperately wants this deliverance to take place. And because we as humans are not only part of creation, but we are central to creation, we groan too. Not only so, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. We have hope. We know our past is covered and our future is secure, but in the middle of that, we still groan. Paul says that we have been given the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said last week? God's love has been poured into your hearts. The Holy Spirit has been given to us broken people. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the blessed Trinity, the same Spirit that hovered over the earth at creation, the same Spirit that empowered the Lord Jesus Christ, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that birthed the Holy Church, the same Holy Spirit reminds us of what has been done for us. Remember, he is the great hope giver and the great hope sustainer but also it is declared here that the Holy Spirit is the great promise keeper. We are called as Christians the first fruits. We are the installment, the first installment. We are the initial down payment because the Holy Spirit who's living in normal people like us has brought the new heavens and the new earth of the future into the now because we are part of the kingdom of God. And yet despite that reality and despite his presence and despite the hope of our past being covered and despite the hope we have in the future because of his presence, we still groan. That is the perfect picture of Christian hope. We hurt and we hope all at once. Yes, we live in a foreign land. Yes, we're behind enemy lines. Yes, we are exiles. But the redemption of our bodies, Paul says, is coming. As Jesus was physically resurrected and no longer will be touched by death, so we will be resurrected too. See, that is our future hope. And Paul says in verse 24, For in this hope we are saved. But what hope is seen? But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul says salvation is yours if you're a Christian. But we do not fully see or understand or experience the full effects of Jesus' work in ourselves or in creation. But we have certain hope and we wait patiently as every generation of Christians has to see the beginning of the end which will bring us back to the perfect beginning. So the scriptures declare unhindered creation groans. And we groan, and hope stands, and hope grows. But then Paul takes it a step further. When I was preaching through Romans for the first time in this community, I was so struck by this next verse. I'd read it a hundred times, but I'd never really thought about it. 
Not only is creation crying out for this to end, not only have many of us in our dark periods said, please, please come and set us free, but then Paul goes further and says that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Christ, he groans and longs too. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness We do not know what we should pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The word intercession in prayer language means the coming coming between, the standing in the gap. That's the definition of intercession. So when we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit prays for us. He groans. These sighs are a gift because it tells us that God knew we would need this. We've all had times when we have no clue how to pray, right? Anyone? No words, no feelings of hope, no feeling of God's power, no feeling of God's presence. And it's right there in that moment, the Holy Spirit, whether we know it or not, begins to express our feelings and thoughts that we cannot articulate, those things we want to say but cannot say. Or as another person wrote, the Holy Spirit does not give Christians armchair advice. He rolls up his sleeves and he helps us bear our weakness. That's real help. It says that the Spirit of God groans on our behalf as we groan in this creation, as creation groans itself. And then it says in verse 27, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes, stands in the gap, prays for the saints in accordance with God's will. Just I wanted to remind you of that this morning, that if you're a Christian here, no matter your age or stage, you are a saint here this morning. Do you agree? You used to have the name ungodly over your life or enemy of God, but because of the work of Jesus, you are now a saint. You do not need to be called a saint by anyone else. God has called you a saint because of the work of Christ. And because of that, you have perfect standing before God the Father through the work of Jesus. And it says that the Spirit of God is standing in the gap for those who are called saints. Another person said it this way, God loves you so much. He loves you more than you even love yourself. Therefore, he groans for you. I love when he said, fortunately, the Holy Spirit possesses power we just don't have. At the end of our strength, we groan and that's it. There's nothing more to give. But the Spirit, oh, he groans with purpose. He intercedes on our behalf, praying with wisdom we do not possess, requesting of us what we are too short-sighted to perceive. And most of all, he groans his intercessions in heaven so that our minds and the mind of the Father will unite to accomplish God's will. The Spirit of God stands in the gap for us when we cannot. Now this next verse is on everyone's bumper sticker. (laughs) Over all sorts of mirrors, people quote it all the time, terribly. But when you have the context of this passage, that sickness and death and groaning are real, and actually this is a tough run called life, and that we're groaning and creation is growing, and yet we have hope in the middle of hurt, And we have assurance that the Spirit of God is standing in the gap for us. Only then can you quote this verse and believe it. You don't quote this verse without all the rest of it. And it reads like this. And we know, we have hope, we have certainty, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know, we as Christians, even our brokenness, have real hope. We do not cross our fingers in this movement. We do not shrug our shoulders or suppose. We do not wish. We know. 
We know because of God's character and because of his promises. And we know that all things will work out for us because God loves us. And we who have relationship with God through Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit have this promise. All things will work out for good. In this life, no, that is not preached in the scripture. The promise that Jesus gave us that no one has on their mirror is in this world there will be many troubles. That's a promise of Jesus too. This is about ultimate, ultimate hope and good. This is immense assurance because this is actually connected to our future hope and our coming redemption. See, our salvation, God's eternal love for you this morning, is rooted in eternity. These next few verses by many theologians is called the golden chain of faith. And it reads like this, For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers. For new means to intimately know. The verb form of it is, is actually the word sex, between a husband and a wife. It is an active thing, not a passive thing. And it actually, in the language, reads like this. Not foresight, it's foreordination. It comes from Amos 3.2. You only have I known, chosen, sympathized with, and loved out of the families of the earth. Paul says that God in eternity past called you and chose you. God has done everything needed to secure your eternal hope and glory. God predestined you, appointed you, uh, determined that you would know him out of love. And it says in verse 30, and those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. This goes back to last week. We have hope because our past is covered. We're in good standing, justified. We were guilty, no longer guilty because of Jesus. And the result is, this is so mind-blowing. Not only are we justified, past tense, we are glorified, past tense. That means that this moment, right now, your eternal salvation is secure. You already are glorified in the presence of God the Father. You have nothing to do to earn his love or salvation. No, that's an amen moment. That's the death of religion. That's the burden off so many people's backs in this church who though they say they believe in grace alone, in faith alone, by Jesus alone, you keep acting like you have to earn your salvation. You already are glorified by the love of Jesus in your life. You are justified and predestined and called and loved and glorified. See, this is ultimate hope. I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. And it's all by the mercy of a loving Father. So what shall we say in, in response to this, Paul says? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What's amazing, I found out, uh, was reminded this week, verse 32 Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's right hand, when he was laying, dying on his deathbed, his last words were verse 32. That's what he said when he passed into eternity. If Jesus has bought me, and the Father has called me, and the Spirit has sealed me, and God's love is eternally for me, if God has brought me into the relationship of the Trinity himself, how will I not not only know his love, why would he not give me all things, if this is how long and deep and wide and beautiful that he is to himself and to us? See, that's faith, and that's confidence, and that's hope. 
So Paul says, so who's going to bring any charge against those who God has chosen? Bring it. It's God who justifies. Who is going to call me into the court of heaven now and charge me? Who is going to give any accusation? Who's more powerful or all-knowing than the God who's already made me right? Your past mistakes can't bring charges against you. Satan will accuse you, but he has no right anymore. Your family and friends, not enemies, not even your own heart or trolls online can call you out because you're already in good standing and you're already glorified and you're already righteous and you're already acquitted and you're already in a right relationship with God and all your sin has been dealt with and resurrection is your guarantee and a new creation is coming. Who is going to bring a charge against a person like you? No one. Because it says, who is it he who condemns? Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Not only do we get the bonus of the Spirit of God who's praying for us right now, Jesus is praying for you right now too. Do you believe that? Jesus is not just your substitute historically, not just resurrection. He's not just the picture of ascension. He is the example of intercession. The Son of God is your advocate right now looking out for your welfare, and he always will be. Right now, in this moment, do you know it? Right now and throughout eternity, Jesus, your hope, is praying for you. He's standing in for you. He's covering you and he's loving you. How could we say anything less than for me to live as Christ and die as gain if this is what he is truly doing for us? We have the spirit of God who gives us hope and reminds us of hope and tells us hope is true and seals us until the day of redemption. Jesus, our great advocate and king, is standing in the gap for us and praying before the Father and continually making us right right now and reminding us that though this world is broken, hope is come, hope is coming, and hope in its full extent is coming when he comes back. So then now it happens This is the moment. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, the danger of the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced. I know. I have hope. Death. No. Life. Angels, demons, the past nor the future, nor any power, no height or depth, anything else in creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ, who is my Lord. I want you just, again, to understand the power. Let this infect you. Hope is not sort of here. Hope is here. Death is not going to pull me away from God. Life and its allurements, no. Demonic, cosmic powers, no. There's no political power, nothing spiritual, nothing in heaven or hell. There's no disappointment. Neurosis, mental illness, psychosis, insanity, no, won't take you. No disease, no broken romance, no lost dreams, no financial crisis, no accident. No amount of shame or guilt or regret, persecution, lack of freedom, lack of food, anything done to me, anything I've done to others, no sin, small or large, or private or or public, not old age, not disability, nothing in time, nothing in the expanses of space, 
Nothing in the known or unknown universe can ever separate you from God's love because it was given by God the Father and it was bought by the Lord Jesus Christ and it's been sealed by the Holy Spirit. See, this is our hope as Christians. Our past is covered and our future is secure and there is a day coming where creation itself will not be destroyed by our God but recreated and made healthy again and all things will be right. Shalom will be given back again. Now, we all say this and then, mm, get our little white hanky for a moment at church and then we go out those doors to life. Paul understood that we would need a continual, not baptism, that's a one-time thing, filling of this. See, we as a church are praying that God would continue, right? Remember that image last week of epicenter to do this thing among us in our very normal lives, do it among other churches. But we have to be radically filled with hope that is heaven given. And so as we begin this again, here's just what I want to do. I want to take a moment to pray for you and for myself. I want to pray right out of the scriptures And I want to actually pray out of Romans 15. It's the verse we prayed for the other churches last week. And I want to pray it for us. That the Spirit of God, who is made, who's made us the first installment, that he will birth hope in every single situation in this church. And the hope that we're talking about is resurrection, eternal life, and hope in suffering. That there would be this knowing that God will work all things out for good, that there would be a knowing among us that Jesus' resurrection is true and it's given to us, that there would be a knowing in this church that there is a coming future that will make all things right, a knowing that will transcend everything else that actually makes other people cry and die. My prayer for myself and you, my brothers and sisters this morning, is that, that this hope would be so profoundly infectious that our last words would be about Jesus and our hope in him. So would you let me pray for you this morning? And it's so interesting because much of the time when someone prays for you, many people aren't praying at all. You're thinking about everything else. Stop. Take a moment. Let us join together as one mind, as one people, and ask the Spirit of God to do this. I'm just going to pray out of the scripture. It's Romans 15. Open yourselves up. May the God, may God... That may the God of hope fill you. Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's my prayer. Lord, you are actually called the God of hope. Give us this name in this season for this church. I pray for joy in our church. I pray for peace in our church. I pray that this church would trust Jesus. And I pray that the overflow, because this, this prayer, Lord, says that you won't just give us hope. You will overflow. So it will be beyond contain or control. We pray for an uncontrollable overflow of hope that is produced by the power of the Holy Spirit in this church. We ask this in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. We're not done. There's one other thing I'd like to do together before we take communion as as a family.
And it's this. We've been taking moments to pray in our services. And I want to focus in on that word intercession. We've heard that the Spirit of God is praying for you and us right now. We've also heard that Jesus is praying for us and you right now. But I want to say this. I want to ask this this morning. Who is praying for all the people who do not yet know the Lord? See, our role as the church, as the hands and feet of Christ on earth, is to imitate the one that is doing things for us. We are called to stand in the gap for the hundreds of thousands of people in this region who don't know, don't care, think they know, and don't, or worship another God. Many of them would even be offended that we'd say we'd pray for them. But I want to say this morning, we want to take a moment in this service, and I want us to pray for this region. And I want us to ask God to birth this hope again in this region. We are going to keep, it says in the book of Isaiah, you keep asking me until I establish the thing I've started. And I want us to do this together. You know, it was last year, Pastor Beth and I and others were talking about a one week we were doing. And in that whole conversation, uh, we were talking about God's sovereignty and the hope and salvation we have. And Beth was reflecting on John 6.44. Years before Paul articulated Romans 8, John summarized it in one sentence. And it reads like this. It says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. And Beth was thinking and praying about this. And I don't know if you remember when we prayed this for our family and friends, but she just wrote this very simple prayer. Father, give Durham to Jesus. And Jesus, give Durham eternal life. And I want us to take a moment. I want us to stand in the gap for hundreds of thousands of souls right now and pray this on their behalf. Would you stand and do this with me? And by the way, I'm just going to ask the Spirit of God to do something as you stand. Here it is. Holy Spirit, would you begin across these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to start bringing names or places or people to their minds as we pray this very simple prayer. So Holy Spirit, come. Lord, we have such hope. We have such hope. Hope that makes no sense to so many, but it makes sense to us because we've met Jesus. And we take your word serious, Jesus, that says no one can come to the Father in, you know, unless, unless this happens, unless you know, it's drawn. So, God, we, we'd ask you to look from heaven at the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in our region. Look, oh Lord. Thank you that you would pray for us, Jesus, Spirit. But we want to come now boldly to you. And we want to pray for all of them. So we pray this simple prayer. Father, give Durham region to Jesus Christ. Jesus, give Durham eternal life. We pray that thousands of people would supernaturally encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Romans 8 would be their story too. 
Oh God, so move in this region. So move in this region that the last words of thousands of people will not be about power or knowledge or money or fame or anger or death or loss. But their last breath in this region would be turned to Jesus. Oh God, do this thing in our time. Oh God, do this thing in this place. We will continue to pray and to work and to plead and to wrestle until you do all you've promised. We pray this with great hope in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. We're going to celebrate our hope this morning through communion. Are you excited to take communion this morning and celebrate our hope? I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. This is a symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the symbol of Romans 8. This is the symbol of Romans 5. The scriptures are clear. If you are a Christian, you are welcome to come to the table and you are allowed to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. The scriptures are clear. If you are not a Christian, do not do this because you have not met the one this represents. The scriptures are clear. Are you a Christian who's struggling? You may come. Are you a, script, are you a Christian who's running and will not submit to Christ? And the scripture says, do not come. Do not come until you're ready. The scriptures also say, do you have anything against anyone else? Maybe you need to go reconcile that first. So Lord Jesus Christ, as we celebrate our hope in the past, our hope in the now, and the hope of the, in the future, Holy Spirit, bring the presence of Jesus to each communion table as we thank him for his great death and resurrection. Inspire and build and, and overflow hope among us. We ask this again in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's sing to our Lord and let's celebrate the resurrection we have in him. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.